Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the book of Job in the first place. Job chapter 38, and then the Gospel of John chapter 1. Both readings will uh, connect with Genesis chapter 1, which I hope to preach to you on the opening verses of Genesis 1, where God begins His work of creating. So Job 38 in the Pew Bible, page 561. 561. And here the Lord speaks directly to Job after Job has been complaining that he's been hard done by. Then the Lord, as it were, puts Job in the dock and questions him. We read these words. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep, Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. We'll pause there and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, page 1127, 1127. where John begins his gospel account of the arrival of the Savior, Jesus Christ, but then note how similar that is to the opening chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1. We'll read the first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. 
which happens to be page one in the Pew Bible. We're going to focus on the opening two verses of the Bible. Here is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's as far as we'll go this morning. In response to the preaching of the gospel, we'll sing from Psalm 145 about the Creator's care for His creation. We'll sing the stanzas 2 and 3 of 145. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we begin what I hope will be a series of sermons on the opening chapters of Genesis. I wanted to do this together with you because there always seems to be so many questions about what God reveals in these chapters, questions that are really foundational for our faith and truly relate to everyday life. Questions like, did God create the world out of nothing, or did He use the process of evolution to bring it all about? Is the earth billions of years old, or is it more like thousands of years old? Were there people living before Adam? Did we evolve from these pre-Adamites and before them from animals? Are Adam and Eve even historical people is a question people ask. Or is the story of Adam and Eve just a story, just a made-up analogy of some kind that we're not supposed to take literally but just draw some kind of general truth from it? And if Adam and Eve are not historical figures, if they really didn't eat fruit from a forbidden tree, how did sin come into the world? And if Adam was not real, what are we to think of Jesus, who is called in Scripture the last Adam? Then there's a question about marriage. If Genesis 2 is really nothing more than a story, a myth, is marriage really supposed to be between one man and one woman? Couldn't it be between three or more people? Maybe the Mormons have it, right? Could it be between members of the same sex? And when it comes to sex and gender, just how many genders are there? Is gender something we choose or something given to us? These questions are in the air in our time and our culture. And Genesis, particularly in these opening chapters, has something to say about all of these questions and more. In His providential care, the Lord has placed Genesis as the first book of the Bible and Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, as the opening chapters, lay out what you could say is the blueprint for Scripture. If we get Genesis 1, 2, and 3 wrong, 
where God sets the stage, we're going to get the rest of Scripture wrong too. So, we're going to take our time and pay very careful attention to this part of God's Word where He introduces Himself to us for the first time, where He he lays out the groundwork for everything He's going to do in the course of history. With that in mind, I proclaim this Word of God to you under this theme, Meet Your Maker. Meet Your Maker. We'll see that He is the matchless Creator, and He's the devoted caregiver. Well, our text begins with those very familiar words, in the beginning God created. And I want to just dive into the grammar here for just a few moments because the grammar is rather particular and it's rather important for the meaning. Moses, who wrote this book, he does not say in a beginning. He says in the beginning, which indicates a definitive start, the very beginning of God's work of creation. It also does not say when God began to create the heavens and the earth, meaning that we'd have to go on to verse 2 to understand what God's first act of creation was. No, verse 1 is its Standalone sentence, it's what is called an independent sentence or clause, no sentence rather. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period, full stop. John, which we read, John's gospel, begins with those words. He's echoing Genesis 1 when he writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning. Very plain language Moses uses, and John echoes, to record God's opening creating act where He called forth the heavens and called forth the earth, and instantly, brothers and sisters, they appeared. That's Genesis 1 verse 1. They appeared, as verse 2 will tell us, without form and void, and we'll get to what that means in a few moments, but Just as Psalm 33 says, which we sang, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and a little bit later, speaking of the earth, for God spoke and the earth came to be, it's simply by an act of God's will that the earth and the heavens pop into existence. And we heard in the fourth commandment this morning, we hear that regularly Sunday mornings, that God created the earth, the heavens and the earth, in six days. Right? You're very familiar with that. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth. He rested on the seventh. That's the pattern for us. Genesis, or rather, Exodus 20. So, you put it all together, brothers and sisters, there is no billions of years, either within verse 1, as some like to think, or between verses 1 and 2, as others like to think. There's no billions of years here. There's no billions of years anywhere in Genesis 1 or, in fact, anywhere in the Bible. There's also no matter. What I mean is no stuff 
by which God makes the earth. This description in the beginning indicates an absolute beginning. There there was nothing prior. Only God existed prior to the start of His creating work. You know, evolutionists, they say that matter, and by that they just mean stuff like mysterious matter floating around billions of years ago, that they, they say it has always existed, this matter, and some parts of this matter eventually in the course of a long period of time managed to collide together by chance, explode. They call that the Big Bang Theory. And over a billions, billions of years out of that explosion came the organized universe that we know today. I wonder if you've ever noticed, brothers and sisters, just how how people are, some people are so very confident, so very sure that they know exactly what happened billions of years ago. They know how this earth came to be, they say, when not a single human was there, let alone themselves. But there was somebody there, somebody who saw it, somebody who did it. That is God the Creator. And and what does God say about man's arrogance in trying to assume and, and tell God what really happened in the beginning? He said it to Job, Job 38, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you, evolutionists, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Were you there? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon the heavens and the earth? You know. God is mocking Job. God is mocking those who think they know better than God what happened in the beginning. Man can never be in a position to tell the Maker how He did His work of creating. Only God can tell what He did. And He's done that in Genesis 1 in very simple, plain language. He created everything that exists out of nothing. There was nothing. Later in Scripture, the Lord confirms that understanding, Hebrews 11, verse 3, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Paul describes the Creator in Romans 4 this way. He describes Him as the God who gives life to the dead and the God who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Brothers and sisters, meet your Maker. This is your God. The God who, who, as it were, snaps His fingers, speaks a word, and pop! Things come into existence, a globe, the heavens. I mean, is there any creature or any being anywhere that comes anywhere close to the magnificence of the Creator, our God? In the beginning, God. Isn't that a bit of a curious way to start the Bible. 
it's almost as if we've missed a chapter in the, in the story. Like Moses introduces here he, the main subject, God, without any explanation. There's no backstory to God. Like where did God come from? Who, who is responsible for His existence? How does God exist? Who is He exactly? There, there's no philosophical inquiry. There's no proof offered for God's existence like so many offer or demand today. Rather, we find a simple, profound statement of facts in the beginning God. And you know, that's something we, we should keep in mind when we're dialoguing, discussing with our neighbors about the gospel, about God perhaps, and the existence of God. Remember, the Bible never tries to prove that God exists. The Bible just states it. The Bible just confesses it. God's people, we confess God exists. We don't try to prove it. Don't get me wrong. Certainly, we can use reason and logic with our neighbors and discuss with them the many good reasons why God does exist. And we should try to take away any of their misunderstandings that they might have built up by false reasoning and false logic. But at the end of the day, it's not going to be a matter of us winning the argument and proving to them that there is a God. It's always a matter, rather, of winning the heart. Winning the heart. And that's something only the Spirit of God can do. So, we talk with our neighbor, but the best we can do is pray for our neighbor. In the beginning, God. That means that God simply was there. He existed before the beginning. At the moment where, when time began which must mean that God existed before the beginning. It must mean that God Himself has no beginning. He's before all things. He's above all things. This opening verse tells us something about the essence of our Maker, beloved. He is eternal. He is transcendent. That is to say, He's, he's timeless and boundless in His presence. We sang about it in Psalm 90. From everlasting stood your holy throne to everlasting you are God alone. I mean, we can't even get there in our minds what that actually means. From everlasting to everlasting. That's God. We humans are mere creatures, right? We're born at a certain point in time. We are bound within the confines of time. We're only located ever in one single place. But our God, He has no such restrictions. He's outside of the limits of time and space. He's outside of the limits of the laws of nature. For He existed before they did, and in fact, He created them. He created them. That's clear from the next words. God created the heavens and the earth. What that's telling us, in part, is that creation is something distinct from the Creator. And we need to realize that the Creator stands in a class of His own. He, he's something altogether other than the creation. You know, that's quite a different idea from what many religious people have in our time. 
Many people think, if they think about God, they, they think that God is actually part of creation, part of nature, they say. You see that quite strongly in the, among the environmentalists. They speak about Mother Earth or just Earth, and they speak of Earth as if it's a, an entity, a power. Earth, Mother Earth reigns supreme. The Earth, nature, cannot be harmed in any way for we derive our life from the earth, and we, in fact, stand on equal footing with all the rest of nature, they say. And others go a little further. They speak about how the Spirit of God is, is found within all of nature. The Spirit of God is in a rock, or it's in a tree, or it's in a monkey. Certain religions actually stress that animals have spirits just like humans. So, if you if you kill an animal, you have to do something to address the, the needs of the spirit of that animal. Well, this whole concept that God is, is throughout creation, that God is in all things, that concept is called pantheism. It's one of those ancient lies that's been around for thousands of years, and it's still around today. Maybe you've seen it even in mainstream Western culture. It's just, it's just hiding below the surface. They don't announce it. Hey, we're going we're gonna to show you a pantheistic movie, but it's there. What about Star Wars? Star Wars with the talk about the Force being with you. What is that, the Force? The Force, Obi-Wan Kenobi. The Force is what gives you the ability to do what you need to do. The force is some kind of impersonal God controlling things behind the scenes. What about Thanos in Infinity War? Somebody says to Thanos in that movie, the universe has judged you. Think about that. The universe, has, not God has judged you, the universe has judged you. You asked it for a prize and the universe told you no. Suddenly, the universe is a living being. That's pantheism. You see this idea coming out in television as well. Different shows, when a character dies, quite often they, they make reference to what happens to that person's spirit. They don't talk about that spirit going up to heaven, much less down to hell they say that the Spirit hangs around on the earth. The Spirit becomes one with nature all around. So they say about the deceased person something like, well, we see Him in the birds of the air. We hear her, hear her in the laughter of our children or in the rustling of the grass or we, we see Him in the clouds. Keep an eye out for that next time you're watching a movie or reading books, and then remember what our text teaches in very straightforward language. The Creator is something other than the creation. He's separate. He's distinct. He's above it all. In the beginning, God was there, and then He created the heavens and the earth. And that's good news, isn't it? What purpose would life have if all we 
do is, is live as a human today only to die and then be joined with nature tomorrow. What's the purpose in that? What, what help would there be too? In this very challenging, difficult life where we're constantly battling the effects of sin in one way or the other, what help is there if nature itself is the only God that there is, this, this impersonal force in nature? But how refreshing it is, brothers and sisters, how, how beautiful and comforting it is, isn't it? To know that our God, who's pledged to look after us, our Creator is above it all. He's superior to nature. And He's a very personal God. In fact, He has nature in complete control so that He's, he's more than able to give help in our difficulties. Brothers and sisters, if your God can call things into being that did not exist, think about that power, then what can He not do for your needs? His power is beyond fathoming. God spoke, things leapt into existence. Can we even grasp that? Remember that this Creator is also your God. So call out to Him whenever you have need. Because this God not only has the power, but He has the care. He's, he's listening intently. That comes out too when you reflect a little more about what, what's, God, what, what's going on here, what God is doing. We learn here that God created the universe, but why? Well, our text doesn't say, not outright. So we have to ask a few questions. Did God have a need to create the world? Was there some issue? Was there some emergency that prompted Him to, to do this? Was there a problem of some kind that needed solving? Well, the answer must be no, because there was nothing that existed besides God. And Scripture elsewhere tells us that God of Himself has no need of anything. God is perfect. God is complete. He's always content within Himself. That's also quite different from you and me, isn't it? We humans, and in fact all creatures, by nature, we are dependent beings. We depend. We like to think we're self-sufficient. We can get by all on our own. But the truth is, we have needs. We need oxygen. We need food. We need water. We need shelter. We need clothing. We need human companionship, love, and support, and so many other things. Anybody who's starved of these things lives in misery if they live at all. Most of all, we humans, we have a great need for God. But here's the thing. God doesn't need us. Paul states as much in Acts 17, where he says, Nor is God served by human hands as though He needed anything. No, no. Since God Himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. You see, God could have continued as He was prior to the beginning. 
He could have continued in his perfect bliss and contentment if he had never created anything, but he did create. Why? Well, the only thing we can come to conclude on that point is that the act of creation is not for God's benefit, it's for our benefit. It's therefore an act of grace on his part. He didn't do it to fulfill his personal desires, but he did it to share himself, to share his goodness and his love with others. God created so that all of creation might know Him as the the wonderful, marvelous God that He is. That especially we humans might, who were made in His image, we might live under His blessing. We might be filled with the joy of, of fellowshipping with this divine being who is good, wise, perfect, and filled to the brim with steadfast love. You see, brothers and sisters, we exist This world exists as a gift from God out of His goodness. So doesn't it necessarily follow then that if you and I as His creatures, if we have a need that we can freely ask Him to fulfill it? The act of creation shows that God loves what He's created. But then you and I, you and I must also love the Creator in return. We've got to give Him our undivided love and devotion. A lot of people, you know, they've forgotten their Creator. They live as if there is no God or if He's there, He's got nothing to do with me and I have nothing to do with Him. Other people acknowledge that God exists, but they they treat God as if God is lucky to have them around. Some, by their attitude or their actions, they they just hold God at arm's length. They try to restrict God to a a part of their lives. You know, um, I'll interact with God on Sunday. I'll interact with God at mealtime devotions. Might go to Bible study, but for the other hours of the week, I'm my own person. The Creator is shut out. He's not allowed in. That's how some people do it. He's not allowed to have a say on what's going on throughout the rest of my life. Brothers and sisters, ask yourself this question. Does that describe you? Are you keeping God in little corners, little slices of your life, and keeping Him out from the rest? You know, God created everything. He created work. He created education. He created relationships. Do you then keep God in mind when you are in your workplace? When you go to school this week? When you're inside the four walls of your home? When you're inside your bedroom, when you're all alone and no one else can see what you're doing, do you live there? Do you act there under the eye of your Creator? What about what's going on in your mind, mentally? And then with your words and with your actions, are you and I, are we we reckoning with Almighty God who made every atom in our bodies? And are we aiming to think and speak and, and act so that He is honored and pleased? 
Or are you harboring sin in some part of your life that you've kept God out from? You've got sin there, and you let it fester, and you engage in it, convinced that nobody knows, nobody will find out. It's too late for that, beloved. The Creator knows. He knows everything. And it's to Him that you and I will have to render account. Now is the time to confess. Now is the time to repent of our sin, as Ecclesiastes 11 says, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know, know that for all these things that you do, know this, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remember your Creator in the days of your youth. Remember Him. Don't forget the God that you have met here in Genesis 1. A day of judgment is coming. Are you ready? You will be ready. You will be if you give your heart totally to your Maker, to your matchless Creator, and live joyfully under His devoted care. That care comes out more especially in verse 2. Verse 2 might seem rather strange and and hard to understand. It, It reads, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the the face of the deep. Some commentators, when they read that, they they think this describes a state of initial chaos. The result of a battle between good and evil, and and the earth was kind of left in a wreck. The aftermath even of Satan's fall, some say. They think God had to overcome some powerful evil. He had to uh, combat the the, the chaos, the powers that, that are churning in this chaos before He could go on to create the orderly world. Well, on a different day, we hope to come back to the creation of Satan and the angels in heaven because that is its own story, its own account. But for right now, let's clarify that what verse 2 describes here is very simply an empty earth, a lonely earth. Basically, the earth was, was blank, you could say. It was like a blank slate. There was no vegetation. There was no animals. There was no humans, no light. It was an uninhabitable mass. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. So, it's not possible that God created something that was a chaos. God didn't create a chaos of competing powers. That's not in His nature to do. Very simply, Genesis 1 verse 2 tells us that He created the heavens and the earth in their basic shape, but without many of the details and particulars that came later. Much like a child... We'll start with a lump of clay, like, like Play-Doh maybe, right? You, you give your child a rolled-up ball of Play-Doh, and, and the child goes and makes something out of it. Well, in a similar way, but of course not an exact parallel, God, God called into existence basically the lump of the universe, and then He proceeded to make something out of that lump over the coming days. Darkness, it says, was over the face of the deep. 
What's meant by the deep is the waters. So the earth was basically oceans of waters without any land to be found. At least that is what it seems to be. But something else was over the waters. It was dark over the waters, but verse 2 says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I just want to pause over that for a moment. When you put this together with what we read in John 1, what we have here in Genesis 1 is very clearly God the Father, God the Son, He's the Word through whom everything was made, and now also God the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity fully involved in this amazing work of creation. What's the Spirit doing? Well, it says He's hovering over the face of the waters. That verb in the Bible is rather rare. It has a certain nuance to it as well. We find that nuance in, in Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, for example, where Moses uses it there to refer to the, the actions of a mother eagle who is hovering, or it could be translated, fluttering over her young. She's hovering over her young. What's the nuance there? Well, a mama eagle, she's got many tasks, but one of her tasks is to teach the little baby eagles how to fly. To do that, mama will nudge the little eagle babies out of their warm nest, and, and you know that the eagles have their nests on high, right? Either really tall trees or high in the cliffs. So when the little eagle is nudged out of her nest by the mama, that little, those little babies, they start to plummet to the earth rapidly. And as they fall, the instinct they were created with starts to kick in and they begin to flap their wings and they start to learn to fly. That's how they do it. Now, if anything should go wrong, if the little eaglet didn't quite get it, or if there's other danger around, the mama eagle is prepared to swoop down and catch the baby bird up on her wings, on her pinions, and take him back to the safety of the nest. That is why, brothers and sisters, the mama eagle hovers. The hovering of the mama is motivated by deep concern and care for her young. Well, then, here we have the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the waters. That means He's not just idling there in park, but He's actually caring for the creation that's just come into existence. He's watching over it. He's the agent of the Father, upholding creation so that nothing falls apart. And what precisely is it that the Holy Spirit is, is busy caring for? Verse 2 tells us it was an earth without form and void, uh, an empty space with vast waters covered in darkness. The Holy Spirit cares for this mass of the earth, this unformed world where there's no life whatsoever, there, there's no uh, possibility for or, or not yet inhabitable. If the Holy Spirit cares for that earth, how much more, brothers and sisters, do you think that He cares for the world today that is full and teeming full of life? 
And how much more do you think God cares for you? You, a child redeemed by His grace in the death of His Son. We needed to be redeemed because of our sin. We'll hear that whole story in Genesis 3 some weeks down the track, but we already know the basics, right? We know it very well. We insulted and offended God with our choice to disobey His command. And because of that, sin corrupted. It came in and corrupted all of God's good creation. It's such a travesty. And yet our Creator didn't toss us out like He could have. He didn't judge us and destroy us as He had every right to do. But as we read from John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness but the darkness has not overcome it. What's John doing? He's linking the gospel of Jesus Christ with the opening words of Genesis. He's saying the Creator has begun again in Jesus Christ. The Creator chose to do what was unthinkable. He entered into His own creation in order to shine the light of life again into the darkness, our spiritual darkness, sin. In the beginning, God was, God the Son was there with His Father and the Spirit involved, fully involved in the creating work. And ever since the fall into sin, God the Son has been deeply involved in God the Father's re-creative work. The Word of God, Jesus, has come into the world, into the flesh, to bring back the life we lost. The world He helped to create in the beginning, He has since come to save. And He has succeeded in that. Despite all opposition, as John writes, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness cannot overcome the light of the Word of God. So the Son and the Father and the Spirit, they are, they are hard at work redeeming and restoring this world, the same heavens and the earth that were created in the beginning. And if the heavens and the earth are worth God's time, they're worth our time too, aren't they? We don't give up on life because God doesn't give up on life. God is working to restore. Sin is in this world. We must struggle against sin, but sin has been overcome in Jesus, and it will be removed from this creation on His great day. So, Beloved, you can go to school this week, this first week of school. You can go to work. You can continue your retirement. You can be a stay-at-home mom. You can do whatever you're doing under that reality, under the sure hope that 
there's a purpose in it all and a restoration coming. You've already met your maker. So now, remember him all your days, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's no one like him. There's no one like this creator God of ours in power, in grace, in care and love. He's already given himself to you. So won't you give yourself to him? Amen.